Our scripture today is from John 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Let's uh, take a moment and just pray, and we'll get into our text a little bit here. Heavenly Father, we come to you now because we need you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need you, we rely upon you, and we need you to open your word to us uh, through the grace, through the fellowship that Easter means for us now. Be with us as we ponder your word anew. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of, the, uh, one of my favorite illustrations uh, used around Easter time is of a, a small courtyard in a church in England. And in that courtyard is a tomb, and that tomb is made of stone. And the stone is split right through the middle, and there's a tree growing up out of it. And it's, a stra- it's the strangest thing to behold. And what happened was that there was a soldier of note who was buried in that tomb, and his last request was, please uh, bury me with an acorn in my hand. And that acorn took the power of the death in that soldier's hand and turned it into enough life to break open the stone. Now, it's it's a fantastic illustration, but it can be misunderstood. So let's not misunderstand it. We don't mean something... Um, something that's an ideal to be passed on when we talk about Jesus' resurrection. We don't mean something that is um, goodwill towards men. 
and women. We don't mean something that's a platitude. What we mean is the actual resurrection bodily of Jesus. That illustration points to something powerful that happened that established the Christian faith early on, and we've got to come to terms with that. And that's exactly what John would have us do. He writes these things. Why? He's drawing our attention to them. He's drawing our attention to them. So I want us to see just briefly three things. When you deal, when you come to Christianity and you deal with a resurrection on Easter, you have to deal with three things. You have to deal with an empty tomb and eyewitnesses. You have to deal with a reshaped worldview, a reshaped worldview. And you also have to deal with the instruction of a living Jesus. All right, an empty tomb and eyewitnesses, a reshaped worldview, and the instruction of a living Jesus. The empty tomb and eyewitnesses. You know, an empty tomb, verse 1, it says, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, Mary's crying out, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Verse 5, saw the linen clothes lying there. 6 and 7, saw the linen clothes and face cloth lying there that had covered Jesus' head. Now, we've got to be clear when we're dealing with um, this story that we've got, to, we've got to deal with a couple of fallacies that happen right away in our culture, in our own understanding. Maybe you've grown up and sort of carried some of these along with you. So let's deal with them now. Uh, when, we, when we look at the early accounts of the empty tomb and resurrection, I sometimes take for granted that pastors have access to books that, that often people just in everyday life, that you in everyday life don't have access to. So I'm going to recommend one that's very accessible and one that is not so accessible, but they're both very good. One is a little bit easier read. It's popularized, and it's chapter 13 of The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It deals very much with the resurrection. And he borrows very much from... Uh, a more academic book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, where Tom Wright, who's a scholar, biblical scholar and historian, uh, goes through and looks at the resurrection and what kinds of evidences are surrounding that. Both are very good reads. I think that the one chapter in The Reason for God will get you very far if you've never touched it before. If you want to dig deeper, go to Tom Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Mind you, it's about this thick, so I'm just warning you that that's a more, that's more uh, rigorous read. One of the fallacies that crop up around our understanding in our culture and have had for the last couple of hundred years, really, is that the accounts must have been developed later. And so they're either fabrications or they were symbol and metaphor. When I began speaking, I said it's important that we don't take this as symbol and metaphor. That illustration of the, uh, of the, the tombstone that's split down the middle or the tree going up is not meant to make our hearts feel warm through metaphor, um, and an illustration and symbol, the resurrection narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John must have been developed later, so the argument goes, long after the events themselves, and so the empty tomb and resurrection were fabrications at worst or a symbol and metaphor at best. That's how the argument goes. That's what our culture will say. And that's what our culture has said for, for uh, a couple of centuries now. How are we to deal with that? Well, when you come to Christianity, you've got to come to the empty tomb and you've got to come to eyewitnesses. The first accounts of the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses are found in the Gospels, not, not in the Gospels, but in the letters of Paul. Why is that relevant for understanding? The first accounts of the empty tomb and the resurrection are not found in the Gospels first, but in Paul's letters first. Now, why is that important? Well, historians agree 
and there's a lot of agreement, very strong agreement on this, that Paul's letters were written just 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. They were written before the Gospels, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6 is an example of this. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to pay attention. Paul speaks of an empty tomb and resurrection on the third day. What does he mean by that? He means it's a historical event. He's not talking about a platitude that we live by. He's talking about a historical event. Paul also speaks of eyewitnesses, individuals, groups, and 500 people at one time. So it's not a symbol or a metaphor. Actual eyewitnesses. Uh, He says that most of them are alive to be consulted. You can go cooperate my story with them. There's another place where he says, he's talking to King Festus. He says, King, this has not been done in a corner. Go talk to these people yourselves. You know the things that have transpired. And it's a public record. That's another thing. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted to read. It's a letter that he's writing in, this, in, that, in that quote that I read from Corinthians to a church. It's a public document. It's to be read aloud. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted, anyone who doubted, to go and talk with the eyewitnesses if they wanted some assurance. They were around. Another, uh, another way to think about it is this. The accounts of the women in the resurrection, at the tomb in the resurrection, were too problematic in that day and age, in that culture, to be fabrications. Too problematic. What do I mean? Well, each gospel states that the first eyewitnesses were women. And in that culture, in contrast to what we've been fighting for in our culture for years now, and we still fight for. That culture, in contrast to that, women's low social status meant that their testimony was not even admissible in court. Not even admissible in court. What does that mean? There was no possible advantage for the church to recount these events and include women as those who were testifying for, for them and seeing them first and understanding them first. There was no possible advantage. In fact, there must have been, Tom Wright points out in his work in the resurrection of the Son of God, must have been incredible pressure on the early writers in the early church to take the women out of the narratives. Take them out. Unless what? Unless it happened. Unless they had actually seen them. The only possible explanation for why the women were depicted is meeting Jesus first, as if they had really had Tom Wright argues this. He says that the empty tomb and the accounts of personal meetings with Jesus are even more historically certain when you realize they must be taken together. If there had been only an empty tomb and no sightings, no one would conclude that it was a resurrection. They would have assumed that the body had been stolen. Yet if there had been eyewitness sightings of Jesus and no empty tomb, no one would have concluded that it was a resurrection. Only if the two factors were both true together would anyone have concluded that Jesus was raised from the dead. So you need both the empty tomb, and you need the eyewitnesses. You need them held together, and that's what we have here, and that's what we have in the Gospels. So the Christian faith comes to grips with an empty tomb and eyewitnesses, but we also see a reshaped worldview, a reshaped worldview. Mary's worldview would have included the idea of a final resurrection at the end of time, a 
a final resurrection at the end of time that would have made, where God would have made all things right. Those, that time where he would have judged the righteous and the unrighteous. That was the, that was the worldview that was surrounded resurrection. The idea that an individual rising from the dead before the final judgment was foreign to that worldview, and we see that in the way that Mary questions throughout. It's very striking how she holds on, how tenacious she is, and it shows how tenacious she is and how rooted she is in her worldview. Look at what she says in verse 2. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. You see, so she's not, she's, her concept of resurrection is intact in that question. Her worldview is intact with that question. Verse 13, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've laid him. Verse 15, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. Now, this is interesting, and you've got to understand, it's, it's too easy with the distance between us and the culture then to just sort of write things off. But Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, to all the dominant worldviews of the time, an individual bodily resurrection was almost inconceivable. Almost inconceivable. In Greco-Roman thinking, the soul or spirit was good and the physical material world was weak and corrupt and defiling. To them, the physical, by definition, was always falling apart and therefore salvation was conceived as liberation from the body. In this worldview, resurrection was not only impossible but totally undesirable. No soul, having gotten free from its body, would ever want it back. Even those who believed in reincarnation understood that the return to embodied life meant that the soul was not yet out of its prison. The goal was to get free of the body. And once your soul is free of its body, a return to embodied life was outlandish and unthinkable and impossible. The report, however, of Jesus' resurrection, he writes, would have also been unthinkable to the Jews. Unlike the Greeks, the Jews saw the material and physical world as good. Death was not seen as liberation from the material world, but a tragedy. By Jesus' days, many Jews had come to hope that someday in the future there would be a bodily resurrection of all the righteous when God renewed the entire world and removed all suffering and death. The resurrection, however, was merely one part of the complete renewal of the whole world according to Jewish teaching. The idea of an individual being resuscitated or resurrected in the the middle of history while the rest of the world continued unburdened by sickness, decay, and death was inconceivable. You see what he's saying? See, this idea of an individual resurrection was just completely foreign. It's just foreign to the worldviews that were prevalent in the time, the secular worldviews that were prevalent in the time, as it is for us today. There's a temptation to go back and look back over those many years and say, come on, this is ancient culture. They were, it was regressive, and they were, they were simple, and they were superstitious, and they were, no. I mean, yes, but no. They had a, I had a well-developed worldview of resurrection and what that meant, and it didn't include this. It didn't include this. In The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this. The question comes down to this. How could a group of first-century Jews have come to worship a human being as divine? Eastern religions believe that God is an impersonal force that permeates all things. Therefore, they can accept the idea that some human beings have more divine consciousness than others. Western religions believe that various gods often took human guise. It was possible, therefore, that some human figure could really be Zeus or Hermes. Jews, however, believed in a single, transcendent, personal god. It was absolute blasphemy to propose that any human being should be worshipped. Yet hundreds of Jews began worshipping Jesus literally overnight. He writes, The hymn to Christ as God 
that Paul quotes in Philippians 2 is generally recognized to have been written just a few years after the crucifixion. What an enormous event broke through all of that Jewish resistance. If they had seen him resurrected, that would account for it. What other historical answer can do so? In the account of Mary, it's fascinating to note that not even seeing angels was enough to change her worldview and reshape it. You see how she's reacting to the angels that she sees who are, who are proclaiming to her what's going on? Angels' word you know, for messenger, right? Uh, she needed her worldview entirely reshaped. She's, she's planted in her worldview when she encounters the, the angels. She has her concept of resurrection, but it doesn't include this. So she's at the tomb. She encounters the angels. And in verse 15, even when she sees Jesus, we read that she supposed, she supposed him to be the gardener. So her worldview just precludes it. It's not something that the, the Jewish community would have fabricated. Do you get that? It's not something they would have conceived of. And she acknowledges this in the fact that Jesus is alive when she says in verse 16, Rabboni, which means teacher. Later on in the same chapter, it's not printed here, but Thomas, who also hadn't had his worldview reshaped yet, when he does, when he does encounter Jesus, he calls Jesus my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He had a reshaped worldview, a resurrected Messiah, and he acknowledged that Jesus was alive. And that brings us to our final point. We've got the instruction of a living Jesus. What does that mean? And what does that mean for us? You know, there's this notion of I am ascending that Jesus brings out at the end of the passage. And that's, that is the detonator for the bomb of power of experience of the Christian life. It's the detonator. Without the detonator, the bomb can't explode. But this is the detonator. You see it in different places, even in pop culture, like uh, Oscar Wilde's play Salome. There are, Herod is speaking to a first Nazarene and a second Nazarene. Herod says, he raises the dead. And first Nazarene says, yea, sire, he raiseth the dead. Herod says, I do not wish him to do that. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. Where is this man at present? Second Nazarene, he is in every place, my lord, but it's hard to find him. It's hard to find him. What does the second Nazarene mean by Jesus is in every place? We see this in the answer, in the instructions Jesus gives to Mary in John's account. Mary is an eyewitness to the empty tomb and the resurrection. And Jesus instructs her when they first meet. He says, and here's the first command, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. And the reason he gives, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You can cross-reference that a little bit later in the verse where he says, I am ascending. Now, why? Basically, what he's saying is this. He's translating to this. Right now, he's saying, I'm here with you in one place. But if you hold on to me, I'm not going to be able to go to be with the Father who will send my spirit to be with all those who I call my own all over the world. Jesus is freed by sending the Father to send his spirit to give you life and to explode the power of the gospel in the center of your being and bring life out of death and give you hope when there hasn't been no hope. Jesus tells Mary to spread the word that he's ascending to heaven in order to benefit all those who are called as his own. How would that benefit Mary? How does that benefit us? You know, there's a question in a, in a tool that's been used for centuries to train children in the basics of the faith. 
It's called a catechism. And one of, the, one of the questions from the catechism is, what benefits in this life accompany or flow from? And, and they basically list all that Jesus has accomplished through this. And the answer comes, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, progress in holiness and perseverance in this to life's end. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' Spirit. He's ascending to send it. Jesus needed to ascend to send his spirit to give us assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience, joy, progress in being set aside for the Lord in our lives and perseverance in that progress until we're with him. What does that mean? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced real relationship with the living Christ through his spirit? John Newton, I was reading one of his letters. He, he wrote... Uh, a ton of pastoral letters where it's him actually pastoring. And there was a letter that I read this week that was to a seventh letter in a line of letters that he had written to a nobleman of his time. And in there, he addresses the issue of what does it look, what ought a, what ought a Christian to look like? If, you're, if we are growing in this, you know, one of our uh, goals for this year is to grow and, and for the rest of our lives is to grow in our love for God and our love for each other and our love for our city. Right? And as we grow in our love for God, what does maturing in that look like? Newton's letter brings out these three things. He says, first of all, delight in God. A delight in the Lord's all-sufficiency to be satisfied in him as our present and eternal portion. What do you delight in? What brings you happiness? What brings you joy? There are lots of things in my life. I would wager to say that there are certain things in your life that you cling to for uh, joy and happiness and laughter and making you feel a little bit better about life when the things of life are getting you down. It's important to understand that as Christians, one of the things Easter means is that we no longer delight in the things that the Creator creates first, but we delight in the Creator Himself. Because Jesus rising from the dead is the beginning of new creation, and He's ushering us into that. Newton also says, personal surrender to his will. And he writes, an acquiescence in the Lord's will, founded in a persuasion of his wisdom, holiness, sovereignty, and goodness. This is one of the greatest privileges and brightest ornaments of our profession. This is what Jesus modeled the three days before. And this is how he took death by the scruff of the neck, and he broke its neck. And there's no victory in death. And there's, there's no sting in death anymore for those who are in him because he rose on the other side of it. He surrendered to his father's will because his father's perfect will is what we need to be dedicated to too. And he enables us to be, through his spirit, ministering to us to trust him more. Are you anxious? When you're anxious, are you trusting in his will? Please do. He's given us the power and the authority to do that. One of the best definitions I've heard of anxiety is it's frustrated passion for omnipotence. But it's the Lord's will who will carry us through the power of sin and death to the other side into his presence. And then third, glorifying God. A single eye to his glory as the ultimate scope of all our undertakings. When you do things, is that one of the first questions you have in mind? Am I undertaking this endeavor? Am I starting this business? Am I going to this class? Am I entering into this relationship? Am I serving this hungry person to glorify God? Or is there another reason why I'm doing those things? 
Is there another thing that pops up first in your mind? Now, if you've lived any length of time as a Christian, or if you're on the outside, listen in, because this is a dynamic that you need to know about. Delight in God, personal surrender to his will, glorifying him in all of our activities does not come naturally to us. It just doesn't come naturally to us. We need Jesus' spirit dwelling in us, making us new day by day, more and more, to be able to do those kinds of things. And without it, we're incapable. We're incapable. So, but the second command was to go to, to Mary, was to go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending. And he says, to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And this is one of the most interesting transformations that happens in this passage. One of the things that gives us the power to live life new, newly. Tom Wright puts it this way. The company of those who receive him, you can think back to John's prologue, where uh, those who received him are given the right to become children to become children of their creator God. And what's the language used here? Tom writes, Now the little company who received him are told for the first time that their creator God is their father, their God. 2017, up till now Jesus has spoken of the father or my father. They are now children of the father in their own right. Reading chapter 20 in light of the prologue, we are thus to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection have together affected for the disciples the new birth, which was spoken about earlier in the book in chapter 1 and 3. That children's tool that I told you about has a question. What is adoption? What is adoption? What is the theological theme of adoption? The answer is adoption is an act of God's free grace by which we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Jesus is ascending to give us all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. My Father and your Father, my God and your God, you were not left alone. You were bought with a price and you were ushered in, not as a servant, although you are that too, but as a member of his family with full rights to sit with him at his table and to rule and reign with him as he ushers in his kingdom. In fact, he means to do that through you as he nurtures you by his Holy Spirit. Easter is not a platitude. It's the living presence of the living God making you new moment by moment. And if you don't know that presence, invite him in. If you've been overwhelmed and you've lacked hope, invite him in. He desires to be there. He calls himself a light in dark places. He says he gives saltiness through his presence like good salt and good cooked food does wonders. The same in your life. He's there for you because of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we continue to celebrate everything that our Lord Jesus has done for us in the resurrection. You, Jesus, have have blown the doors wide open into your presence, uh, into your uh, into eternity, through the power of sin and death that it had over us, through Satan's hold on on us. You've said that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Hallelujah, because you've risen, you've ascended, and you uh, now intercede for us, and you now make us new, even now as we pray. Be with us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.